charismas and charismas. And the things, the things about this particular anecdote that are important to pick out is the emphasis on a single kind of precipitating event, a rumor or a true story, a woman who faced sexual violence or some kind of conflict between Buddhists and Muslims that becomes generalized then to a conflict between all Buddhists and Muslims in a given area. The focus on that individual event, the kind of emotional explosive response, so some kind of metaphor of, of energy, of heat, of explosion, and also a focus on, on new technology on the role that new technology has played. And this is an understandable way of explaining violence in Myanmar. We've seen instances of violence across the country in a number of areas, particularly in Western Myanmar and Rakhai State. Um, you've probably heard about the persecution of the Muslim minorities um, in Rakhai State, although not a minority in the areas of Rakhai State adjacent to Bangladesh. And those adjacent countries are overwhelmingly the majority of the population, but nonetheless facing state persecution and violence from uh, the refined population in Western Myanmar, but also participating in their own violence against refined. And then violence against Muslim populations in other, other parts of the country. In Lashio, in the far north, in Mandalay and central Myanmar, in um, just south of Mandalay in March of 2013. And in the explanations of this, you have a persistent emphasis on rumors, on these precipitating events, and an emphasis on technology. The emphasis on technology, I mean, this Myanmar is a context in which censorship has just ended. You have decades of pre-publication censorship that began to be relaxed in 2011 and 2012, and now free, essentially free publication of materials without censorship prior to publication. Post-censorship, still restrictions. Restrictions particularly on journalists covering topics that are sensitive um, to the state, to um, persons in positions of power, if not part of the state. But prior to publication, um, you don't have the same censorship. So you're seeing flourishing of uh, journals, of uh, publications of novels, and topics that you didn't used to be able to access. And it's really most analogous to me to any kind of reading that you've read about the feeling in post-Soviet states just after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the breakup of the Soviet Union. This kind of feeling of, un of everything being unbounded. You have almost an overwhelming access to different forms of information, journals, and things. At the same time, you have the arrival of telecommunications networks, which has been really, right now we're just at the beginning, but it's still profound. I mean, in, when, when I was first arriving in Myanmar in 2008, it was extremely expensive to only mobile phone SIM card. SIM card could cost, you know, when Matt was doing his language study years ago, so many years ago, uh, it was over, you know, it could be a thousand dollars to purchase a SIM card. When I arrived to live in Yangon full-time at the beginning of 2012, it cost $250 to purchase a SIM card. You could get these kind of throwaway SIM cards, $20, a state-owned monopoly on telecoms. Uh, very limited coverage, uh, country very slow, not a lot of internet access. That monopoly broke up in 2014, and now we have two international companies, uh, Oradu and Telenor, who are beginning to provide services. This is bringing T-Mobile phones, and T-Mobile phones nowadays means also internet access. Internet access means internet, social media, Facebook, and in Myanmar for a variety of reasons, Facebook is, is particularly popular. Maybe you know the old stories that Facebook was something that was not restricted because children of the generals wanted to use Facebook and they persuaded their fathers not to restrict it. Whether this is true or not, Facebook was something that was not restricted. You find all your friends were there who had phones already. So once you had a phone, once you had internet access, you also started logging on to Facebook. As of last year, the number of Facebook accounts exceeded the number of people who were estimated to have access to the internet in Myanmar because a single person having multiple accounts because more people are probably online than we think. But a few years ago, when maybe 1% of the population had, had internet access, 1% of the population also had a Facebook account. Facebook has been used in 
in a variety of ways. The Minister of Information is sometimes referred to as the Facebook Minister. It's used to make formal announcements of a variety of things, like the state amendment announced the awarding of uh, bids for extraction of natural offshore natural gas. They did it via this Facebook account, was the way that the formal announcement was made. Civil society, journalists, everyone makes active use of formal social media, but also not only Facebook. When you purchase a mobile phone in Myanmar, you get a set of apps that are installed on your, on your phone. These apps, especially apps for aggregating Myanmar language news, games, popular culture, also a few apps that have been developed, at least one app that's been developed uh, by um, one of the nationalist movements to aggregate particular sets of news coming out of the Facebook account managed by Yahoo. These, these are things that, in everyday life in Myanmar, you can't escape the availability of a mobile phone, access to these forms of information, because it's uncensored, because you have the technology, it really has changed everyday life. It's probably, in my mind, the primary way that a person in contemporary Myanmar experiences on an everyday basis the political environment changes on the political atmospheres. In any, maybe more than in any other sense, it's a place where you can see whatever other aspects of your life are probably unchanged. The fact that you might have a mobile phone when you get in, and the fact that you can read news that you weren't only able to read prior is a massive change. So it's understandable then that maybe we focus on the role of technology. Certainly, when you have the kind of nasty hate speech that you see on Facebook, propagated by Buddhist leaders, by ordinary, ordinary Buddhists in Myanmar, stuff that's quite nasty and quite easy to track and capture. Quite easy to go on the Facebook page of a high-profile political figure, see the kinds of things that are shared and said, and say, "Right, I got it. Access to this information is so nasty. Society in Myanmar maybe unready, unequipped to handle new freedoms. Lids off the kettle. Explosion of that." And what I want to talk about today is maybe problem, problems with that approach, both as a way to explain how else, as and also as a methodological question, as a way of approaching topics like mass violence in Myanmar. The idea that we're focusing on technology as our primary set of questions is something that I've grown increasingly uh, uncomfortable with over the last few years. And there are two, two reasons why I'm uncomfortable with this, this line of inquiry. This line of inquiry which would say, what is the contribution of new technology and free media? And my question which is to say, new technology and free media are enabling a whole host of new possibilities in Myanmar. So what are those new possibilities? What's the role? What, are, what is their influence on the mobilization of Buddhism and Myanmar? And I think that question is not the right question. It's a question that I think is not only but not going to give us the right answer, but I think it's actually harmful and, and contributes to the mobilization of Myanmar. And there's two reasons I want, I want to say that. But before, before I do, I want to share a, a different anecdote uh, about, you could say about Buddhist Muslim violence, and then an anecdote that I think is maybe a better way for us to think about the mobilization of violence in Myanmar and the world. And that anecdote starts out in February of 2013. So a full year before the violence in Mandalay that I was that I opened with in July of 2014. So in February of 2013, uh, I was just living in, in Myanmar, and I started to notice on shops, uh, on friends, uh, Trishan's bicycle taxis, on various parts of Myanmar. Stickers like this one, just a colorful, small little sticker, and in Burmese script it's 969, which is the symbol of, at that moment, the primary organized form of, you could say, Buddhist nationalism, although I think Matt would not like that phrase, but we'll use it for the moment. And it's given way to other forms of 
are kind of key to unlocking this whole puzzle. Why is this violence happening again? We could, for example, consider free media. How is it, how is it contributing to climate? And we could, of course, say, well, media, the publication of our journals and media in Myanmar, they've got a long way to go in terms of developing good journalism ethics, the way that they write about conflict, consistently mentioning the religion of perpetrators when they're Muslim, but not mentioning the religion of perpetrators when they're Buddhist. Maybe this is it. The, the contribution of a, of a young and underdeveloped media sector in Myanmar. That's what's driving it. And certainly there are people who are, who are making that explanation. Similarly, you could focus on mobile phones. SMS technology. Mass SMS has been used to explain mobilization of violence in places like Kenya, Pakistan, India. You could do the same thing in Myanmar. You could also focus on the internet. Broad category, any kind of internet access. And you could go down the list of Facebook and say, Facebook, rumors on Facebook, hate speech on Facebook. This is the primary thing. It enables all kinds of things. You could, information shared is persuasive, it's visual. It's something that people in Myanmar have barely ever encountered. They're moving pictures, they're obviously persuasive. They swing elections in the United States. In Myanmar, they can cross time and distance in a way that you can never have information cross time and distance across the whole country. This, this is the, the way that we explain violence in Myanmar. But I, I don't think that that really explains violence in Myanmar because we can ask a different question. How is violence being mobilized in Myanmar in a given area or nationwide? And I think we would find a set of answers that do not necessarily center on social media. We could probably construct an answer to that question which could operate with or without a free media in Myanmar, which could operate with or without use of mobile phones and technologies and, and, and new technologies. In this case, then those new technologies are maybe more of a convenience, but are they a necessary part of the mobilization of violence? And I think if we were to ask the question the other way, how is violence affected, we might we might come up with an answer that has nothing to do with technology. And here, here I'm, I'm taking directly the work of Roger Gopal, who's done his research in India on the relationship between television and nationalism, Hindu nationalism. He says essentially that we should be asking questions about nationalism and we should be, in a sense, presuming the significance of something like television. Which is to say, we look at nationalism, and we don't ask about television, and we wait to see how television <laughs> appears within our inquiry. Does it, does it come up? If we ask the question, how has violence been mobilized, or how has nationalism been mobilized? Do we indirectly come to an answer which relies upon television? And I think we should be doing a similar thing in Myanmar. We should be focusing on the mobilization of violence and finding does Facebook, do mobile phones, do forms of new technology, do they come up in our answer to that? So in Myanmar, then we have to say, how? How do we do that? And that's, that's what I'd like to focus on. The second concern that I want to raise, which animates this whole methodological discussion, is that I believe that the explanation of violence, the discourses about how or why violence occurs, the ones that we offer as academics, as journalists, as policymakers, members of states, are just as important, are an important part of the process by which violence is mobilized. I think we need to look not at individual instances of anti-Muslim violence, so the July riot. We shouldn't look at them as a separate or distinct event. We need to instead look at them as part of an, un an unfolding process. And an unfolding process in which the explanation after a given incident, it is as much a part of mobilizing another incident as any kind of precipitating event, the individual rumor, the individual conflict between a Buddhist person and a Muslim person. And I take this work from, from Paul Ress, whose who research in North India I found to be incredibly persuasive. And so Paul Ress, Paul Ress has done 30, 40 years of research into the mobilization of Hindu Muslim violence in North India. And he, over the course of that research, has set up essentially what he sees to be three-part process by which violence has been consistently mobilized in Myanmar. He sees this violence is occurring in a kind of sense of 
preparation, which is perhaps a long-term process of preparing people to be mobilized for violence, establishing a sense of antagonism, a sense of threat from an opposing group. And then he sees uh, moments of activation, which for him is where he'll focus. And I, I don't want to focus as much on that in this talk today. But a moment of activation in which a particular movement, a particular localized conflict, is seized upon by one or a whole set of actors where they, there is a decision made to say, this, this is a moment, this is the lie upon which we fight, or this is the truth upon which we fight. And then a moment of after explanation, in which there's a discussion of the violence that has occurred. How or why? Why did it come about? And this after explanation in Paul Grasso's time has been so important in India because the after explanation in India, as it has in Myanmar, focuses primarily on individual movements, on truth, individual conflict. And what his, what Paul Grasso's argument is, is that the focus on these individual explanations enables then a state response, which is to focus on perhaps arresting a few boys who were unlucky enough to be the boys on the street with the machetes and get arrested. And perhaps one or two persons who are responsible for propagating the movement. And this is exactly what's happened in Myanmar. But what that means is, over the course of years of a conflict unfolding, other persons who participate in the mobilization of violence, not the young boys with machetes on the streets, not maybe the one or two persons who can be identified as the ones who are responsible for the movement, but a whole host of other persons who are involved in mobilizing violence, their responsibility for the mobilization of violence is not the same. And the states, the forms of the state's responsibility in responding to the mobilization of violence also left unclear. So as long as the state is arresting a few of the boys on the streets with machete, and maybe the person who has spread the rumor, the state's responsibilities to maintain law and order, peace, has been met. And so the explanation of how the violence is mobilized is contributing to an environment in which the state can meet its obligations in the most minimal of senses. And I think that Brown's argument applies absolutely to in, in two ways. Um, I think first we can see a similar kind of three-part process unfolding in Myanmar, and, and I think that that warrants a little explanation, so, so I'd like to unpack that a little. Um, over the last three years, um, I've really sought to understand what has amounted to what, what Brown's would describe as preparation for violence. Um, that is, I've, I've sought to understand the, the everyday discourses about Islam, about Muslim others in Myanmar that can justify violence. And this, this began really as an accident. And I, I call this a kind of accidental ethnography in other, in other papers and publications. Because I didn't start out with any intent to research this. I started, I started out living and working in a very poor neighborhood in western Myanmar along the river. Sitting in tea shops every morning, talking with my neighbors, mostly to practice my Burmese. Sitting in the evenings on the corners to talk with them, have beer, and be friends. And in those conversations, there was a persistent set of arguments made about the threat that Islam poses to me. And I saw this as both an articulation of a threat that is existential, a threat to Buddhism existing as such in Myanmar, and also a threat to individual Buddhist persons in Myanmar. But this was all in my neighborhood. I mean, this was one part of human encounter in Western Myanmar. And so then Matt and I started a media and society research project uh, to look at these kind of discourses in other parts of the country. So in the last three months, we've got my colleague, Dennis Klein, and I have done about 70 interviews in six cities in Myanmar asking people, what are your primary concerns? Which is not, not a question about violence, per se, but it's a question which prompts a person to answer their primary concerns in a national or local sense. And inevitably, with almost no exception, one of the things that people have highlighted as a primary concern is Buddhist-Muslim conflict. 
but not in the sense that an outsider might say. Buddhist, Buddhist doesn't kind of like as I'm worried about harm to my to my friends and neighbors, but well, worried about harm to my friends and neighbors, not particularly worried about harm to opponents from another religion. And this has been an entry point into a conversation about what is the justification for that? Why? What are we worried about? I'm worried about the disappearance of Buddhism. I'm worried about threats from Muslims and other parts of the sea. And why? And this has set a whole, a whole set of justifications. A set of justifications which draw upon specific references to, uh, to Islamic teaching or purported Islamic teaching as an inherently violent ideology. Um, if you paid attention to American or British domestic politics, you would have seen similar arguments about Islam being inherently a violent ideology. Arguments made to international news, references to ISIS, violence in Syria, as proof of the inherent violence of Islam, and then references to local conflicts, which we could characterize as a rumor, but I don't think we should if we are a rumor, we mean something that is untrue. References to conflicts that do happen, instances of sexual violence that occur in which the perpetrator is in fact Muslim and the victim is in fact Buddhism, the references to those conflicts as a way to prove a larger claim about the danger that Muslims in Yoma pose to all Buddhists in Yoma. And it's important to say that those things can be true, both because if we focus on a rumor as an untrue thing, find yourself in a difficult position when the rumor is true in conceding that the truth of the matter then is what justifies violence or not. But it's also important to recognize that because we need to recognize the legitimate feelings of many Buddhists in Myanmar who do feel under threat and who have particular reasons that they can point to to illustrate this. But the after explanation, the after explanation has been profoundly important. After the violence in Mandalay, for example, the number of arrests of Buddhist perpetrators and Muslim perpetrators was about equal. Slightly tilted to be more arrests of Muslim perpetrators, but about on par. And arrest of a couple who were responsible for lodging a false allegation of rape at the police station. This is exactly what more arrests would say would be the pattern of arrest. And a few boys on the street, and it kind of an equal number. Which is to say then that the Buddhist community, when generalized, the Buddhist community and the Muslim community are, not, are equally responsible for this conflict. And another instance of a persistent pattern in which Muslims are prosecuted with a higher, a higher level of success and at a higher risk than Buddhists are. Which is a statement by the state that say that when there is conflict between Buddhists and Muslims in Myanmar, that the primary aggressor is a Muslim aggressor, and the primary victim is a Buddhist victim. And this is the after explanation, and this is over time contributing to, and I think maybe the most persuasive way, the feeling that Buddhists in Myanmar are under a daily kind of threat. And this is, you can say this is rumor, you can say this is hate speech, but this is a statement by the state about who should be protected from whom. The second, the, this, I don't know the last one. Uh, so then I think the explanation offered in Mandalay serves in an odd sense to reinforce this explanation. That Buddhists, Buddhists are under threat from the Muslims. Which is to say that the explanation after Mandalay is a focus on rumor, a focus on the spread of this rumor via camera, via new technology, and that then the primary issue, the primary issue causing conflict is the precipitating event. To, to explain violence in Myanmar in the way that I was explaining after Mandalay is to allow the explanation to be rumors and precipitating events trigger a kind of emotional response that is explosive, which allows then the state response to be precisely what the state response was, to arrest a few people from both sides, to arrest the person responsible for spreading the rumor, 
And by the by, we've been making arguments about the importance of restricting speech on things like Facebook and uh, in email to, to propose things like an IT law, uh, which doesn't sound like it's a very good idea. And I think this, this tells us two things. Right? It tells us that the battle for explaining how violence is occurring in Myanmar is a profoundly important one. Because the way that is explained is feeding into the way that the state is responding. And the way that the state is responding is contributing to the sense of threat and the process of mobilizing violence in Myanmar over the long term. And as we've done our research over the last three months, and as we've talked about a little bit yesterday, what's been striking to me is that people are making reference not to a long-term history of Buddhist-Muslim antagonism, though there are histories of that antagonism at different points. People are primarily making a reference to a history that is recent, that is, it began with violence in the Taisi just a few years ago. People are making references to grievances that are relatively recent, which makes me feel that the development of grievance, the perception of grievance as a relatively new thing is being contributed to by the state in Myanmar because of the focus on a certain set of perpetrators and a certain set of victims. Right, so we are maybe developing a historical sense of grievance between Buddhists and Muslims that didn't necessarily exist in the same way over the long I'm not saying there haven't there has been no sense of grievance at any point at other points in Myanmar history, because of course there have. And it's odd to me, and we discussed this yesterday, it's odd to me that some of those histories of antagonism have not come forth in the interviews. And it may not mean that they're not there, it may just mean that they've not come forth. But the fact that the reference is persistently recent, I think is important. And perhaps the final check that we should always be using as academics, as scholars, or as anyone interested in these things, is if our if our explanations for an event such as such as a particular riot track precisely with the explanations offered by a regime which is less authoritarian than it used to be, but still profoundly controlled by the military, which has been a very clever use user of propaganda. Certainly not something that I feel the sense of opposition to that I did a few years ago, but not something that I'm inclined to trust. If my explanations as someone studying the country are precisely the same explanations offered by the state, then I really need to be checking the way that I'm explaining opposition. So then, how, how to continue asking this question? How to unpack the potential interrelationship between the mobilization of violence in Myanmar and the role of technology? I'm certainly not ready to say technology and the anti-censorship in Myanmar are not important, because they are, profoundly. But how can we investigate their relationship to violence without presuming that they are at the center of the question and without falling into this kind of trap of explaining violence in a way that contributes to the mobilization of violence over time? So, so what matters? And I think the the first part of the answer to this is to examine the specific processes, processes by which violence in a given place and time is being organized. And I think if we do this, we can make a positive contribution to political discourse in Myanmar because we can begin to expose some of those other actors, those other processes by which violence is mobilized, not just the boys with the machete, the person spreading the rumor and technology, but the whole host of actors around that who are maybe actively contributing to mobilization of violence or willfully not responding because they may benefit from violence. Which is not to say that there's a national level conspiracy in Myanmar, but it is to say that there are a number of actions that are consistently not taken, and maybe as a result of lack of state capacity, but also maybe the result of will, and it's probably a combination of the two. Yet, at the same time, we need to ask the question in a way that is sensitive to new technology. And this, this is the crux of my problem. How can we maintain that sensitivity? How can we sort of avoid throwing the baby out of the bathwater? Which is to say, can we ask the question, is violence, is anti-Muslim violence in Myanmar any different for the advent of new technologies in Myanmar? 
you're barely doing it when you're on social media, Facebook. You un uncensored, more, less censored media anymore. Globalization violence that we're seeing now isn't any different. And does it become any different over time? And this, this framing of the question I take from Jim Wilson, who's done research on the role of social media in opposition politics in Brazil. Very different context, but I thought that Jim was a useful understatement of it. So, how do we investigate this question? So, the question that's posed, I think we need to then think carefully about how we approach that inquiry in Myanmar. We have to keep in mind first that it's still quite early, that the, such a question is as much anticipatory as it is empirical. Really, a tiny fraction of the 8,000 telecoms towers that would have to be built across the country for there to be nationwide mobile phone and internet access, a tiny fraction of them have been built thus far. And certainly, we've seen violence in parts of the country in which those telecom telecoms towers have not yet been built or had not yet been built at the time of that violence. This is true of our landscape. This is true of areas around Nashville. This is true of other parts of the country. So this alone is enough to tell us that we need to be thinking about this not only in the, in the context of now, but how, what potential futures can we imagine, in a sense, for And to do this, I think there's maybe some might say a kind of old or outmoded idea, but Bordeaux's idea of habitus is, I think, very helpful in this sense. Because Bordeaux talks about a kind of sedimented history of practice. The practices that build up over time through use, through activity, but also through generations, through history. So in Myanmar, six, six decades now of life under various forms of censorship, various military councils and dictatorship. And I do not conflate all years of life in Myanmar with equivalent dictatorship, but various forms of restriction. Restriction on political activity, restrictions on access to information, and I think that this prompts a whole set of practices which are still in use. Right? This is this is how history is sedimented. This is how the things that people do now are informed by the lives that they led before. And the ways that they access information, the way that they constructed pictures of what's true and what's not true in the world. How they manage risk, how they manage threat, how they make friends, how they make community. These things occurring now occur in light of the way that they used to be done. And so I think it's useful if we look at that. We can ask the question, how is violence being mobilized in Myanmar in light of this history of practice? And we can then ask, how is this history of practice changing because of the new technology? And I think this is a way that we can start to see uses of technology in the mobilization of violence. We can start to bring them forward without assuming that they are a necessary part of mobilizing violence. So in Myanmar, I think there's two, two kinds of histories of practice that are useful to talk about. And the first one is an idea of possible deniability. So this is an idea of maintaining distance and managing threats. Uh, in a context before in which it was always a little bit unclear. Perhaps it was clear that you could be punished for a certain set of activities, but the boundaries of what was what was due for punishment and not was always, I think, more unclear than outside commentators acknowledged. I don't think Myanmar was, it would really have ever been accurate to call Myanmar a totalitarian state. So people are managing risks, managing restrictions, getting a lot more done that people might have expected from outside of the country, yet nonetheless dealing with a lot of restrictions. And I think one important way of dealing with that is causing more liability. And you see so many great stories of people doing political activity and everyday life in a way that manages this causing liability. We talked to these people of all different ages, and if you look in the writings of uh, you know, old dissidents and people writing about old dissidents, Christina Fink has a great book about living, living uh, under military rule and talking about the entire life under military rule. And there's a couple of anecdotes from her book that I think 
was kind of pre-ADA in which they would share novels, even novels that maybe borderline political, but also novels that were not political, as a way to maintain a sense of community and political activity when it was difficult to be open about that political activity. And novel sharing was just, just signing your name and writing down the city that you lived in and passing the book on. No comments in the margins, not a particularly political book, but it's shared through networks who understand they share a, set, a certain sense of political sensibility. And by leafing through the margins of the book and seeing the number of names and the number of cities who have read that book before you, you're establishing that you're not alone. Maybe in your particular set of friends, in your village, in your small town, in your university community, you might feel exceptionally alone. But when you read the book and you see the other names, you know that you're not the only one in that business. Other great stories, strategies for distributing political pamphlets, putting a stack of pamphlets on the top of a bus, Nobody notices you put these big pamphlets on the top of the bus, and when the bus pulls away and the pamphlets fly out, and they're on the ground, no one knows where they came from, but everyone can pick them up for a moment. It's no crime in picking paper up off the street, so no one's punished for picking up paper off the street. And no one's punished for putting that, unless somebody saw exactly the guy who put the pamphlets on the roof of the bus. But in that sense, you can manage that, right? The person who's seeking the political activity, they can get away, and the person who picks up the pamphlet, they maintain plausible liability. They can engage in that political conversation in a moment when they felt that they couldn't, but they didn't take on any particular risk. Now maybe if they took the pamphlet and they put it in their pocket, they shared it with another, they maybe crossed the boundary in which they're no longer, they can no longer deny involvement in political activity. But they can put the pamphlet down and they can share the information later. These are all ways of managing life, right? And this kind of sense of participating in politics, participating in things that you're unsure if you're allowed to do, always maintaining a foot in and a foot out, I think that persists in different ways, but it's also breaking down in different ways in the end of the society today. So how does the use of new technology help in the breaking down of the sense of deniability? Facebook is a great way to do this. You can have friends on Facebook, you can follow things on Facebook, and you can scroll through your newsfeed without putting the pamphlet in your pocket, so to speak. The phone lives in your pocket, but you're just scrolling through. Maybe if you share the post, maybe you have crossed the line, which is the same as putting that pamphlet in your pocket, passing it off. But just to scroll through your newsfeed, if you're participating in the conversation now, you're hearing the conversation, but you're still maintaining that thought. And maybe later, maybe over time, and certainly we see this now, you begin sharing that information, right? You begin speaking on and participating. And there's a, there's a really kind of euphoric, there's a, it feels quite powerful, I can imagine, to share those sorts of things for the first time when you couldn't speak in that way before. And this is maybe a way that we start re remaking this old form of happiness, a new way of participating in politics. The other, the other thing that I think is interesting is reliance on rumors, not information. Again, we can say rumors here, but not if we mean rumors are untrue. Instead, if we mean rumors are information from an unofficial source. Not a synonym for gossip or untruth, but a synonym, but a way to say information coming from friends, neighbors, people you trust. My neighbor friends talk about trusted circles sometimes. People they know and people they don't know. People they can talk to and people they can't talk to. And I think this. Now, this is something that people in Myanmar are probably in many ways better at handling than people in England or the United States. You answer a question, you want to know what's happening in, in the United States, certainly. Is there a fire on the other part of your city? You read the news, you turn on television, you listen to the radio, and if none of those things have information about a fire on the other side of the city, I think most Americans are profoundly at a loss as to how to figure out what's happening. Because it's not something that they've had to do in any persistent sense. This is, I think, almost to something to the level of what Jim Scott talks about in Genesis. The kind of learned practice, practice, a skill that can only come through repetitive practice over time. I think people in Myanmar are much better at picking out pictures of the world 
piecing together a piece of information, filling in the gaps, understanding what silence means, and using this type of understanding to, to feel that they understand what threats are, what's happening in the world around them. Now, of course, free media, social media, internet, mobile phones upend this in all sorts of ways. All kinds of new information, new ways of communicating get added into this process. And we should not be surprised that something like videos shared on Facebook is taken as extremely persuasive, right? And as I said before, the swing selections in the United States, the pictures are always persuasive. People again will say it over and over again, I will only believe something if I see it with my own eyes. People are very careful to tell you, if you talk to them about where they get their information, as we've been doing over the last few months, very careful to tell you, we seek out good information. I always check things. I read it in the journal, and I ask my friends. I won't believe it if I don't see it with my own eyes. Now, Facebook replicates this in interesting ways. Mobile phones enable this in interesting ways. You can call your friends across the country. People on Facebook are part of, are part of your friends, literally, whether or not you've ever met them in person. So it introduces new parts of the conversation, new forms of information that you maybe haven't had to deal with before. But it's tapping into something that's a longer history. So how, how may these things come to be significant? How may they change in the life of each other? And that's, you can't really know. I think we can say that there's a clear alignment between these old practices, plausible deniability, reliance on word of mouth information or rumor, and the new technologies. There's some alignment there which we can recognize will be significant. How it unfolds in the future, we can't really be sure. But why, why the taxis? Why are the taxis? And I think the taxis are important because they make clear the sense of being surrounded, the sense of being enveloped by people who agree, who share the same perception of threat. Right now, I was talking earlier about this idea that Myanmar, people in Myanmar, Buddhists in Myanmar, face a threat from Islam. And we're in a moment, I think, where that was maybe has been a belief for a long time, but there's a level of threat from sort of whatever the US war on terror level, orange or red. We're at orange or red in Myanmar now. And there's a, there's a national agreement of this that is being produced. So how is it being produced? And it's being produced through reference to these local narratives, local experiences, and international news that I was talking about. But I also think the taxis help. The taxis are both literal and also metaphorical ways of help because it's saying that everyone around me already thinks we're under threat like this. If I don't agree with this sense of threat, I am profoundly in the minority within my society to say that we face this threat. The taxis are telling me that. They're literally inscribing that on the streets of Myanmar. But Facebook and social media also serve to do this. Right? People who study infrastructure talk about infrastructure inertia, just things about a structure that persist and have interesting effects. So Facebook, the infrastructure of Facebook is such that you can only like something. You can like something, you can share it, you can comment, or you can complain and make it disappear. But if it disappears, it only disappears for you. It doesn't disappear for anyone else. So people are getting information from Facebook. The structure is such that it's presented in a way which emphasizes only those who agree. So if you only have a fraction of your friends, for example, agree with you with a piece of information about threats from Islam, the number of likes are there, and the number of people who don't agree is not there. So if we're using new technology as a way to participate, as a way to manage this boundary between when am I involved in society and politics and when do I maintain plausible liability, even for those people who have not yet been drawn into the conversation, in the way that they're experiencing the information, the infrastructure is such that it's emphasizing agreement and it's not emphasizing disagreement. So I think we need to look at mobilization of violence. Who and how is mobilizing? How means those actors who are responsible indirectly or directly for mobilizing violence. How do we move between a narrative of threat and a particular activation of violence? But to do that, we need to understand how that narrative of threat is developed. And we need to look at the embodied practice 
of Myanmar people as they develop narratives about anything, but including government as well, and consider how new technologies will impact as well. Maybe those narratives would remain the same or would never would have developed inevitably without the new technologies. But I think we can ask about the type of narrative that develops over the next few years in Myanmar and how the technology interacts with that development. And I hope it's in the direction in which we have more peace and less conflict. Certainly people would say access to more information, we need more information to challenge ideas, uh, ideas about Islam as an inherently problematic element. But I think Kazan today is also taught us to think critically about the role of these information technologies in Myanmar without assuming that they are the, front, the center, the hinge around all these issues.